Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Greetings and welcome to another edition of The Way of Panoa. Thank you guys so much for hanging in there. I am unveiling something new. I'm pretty excited about this and we're going to see how this plays out. Y'all know I'll be trying new things all the time and be like, oh my God, life happens. But my daughter and I, we're, we're riffing. She's the creative genius, the creative partner, the creative director that I have been needing this whole time. Your girl has been a gang. And now in a game, and now that she has graduated from high school, is on summer break, you know, before she starts in college. I have time to have this creative genius, Miss Nayla, help me get my stuff together um, and bring you guys dope content that's just fresh and fun and light and easy, but also real serious and keeping it. And you know, your girl is hella petty, so I got to bring it with the petty progressive perspective as well. Um, Nayla and I are doing, uh, you know, we, we, we get in free on Fridays. And if y'all saw the graphic, that is actually a picture of my little love. Um, we were on a college tour and they have a beach and a swing set and she was just living free and enjoying life. And I was like, that picture really embodied the spirit and feeling that I was having today on this summer solstice, January 21st. So every Friday throughout the summer, my daughter and I will be bringing you some hot content. Um, it's like, think about it like a nice wine paired with a fine meal, right? Like, you know, or think about it as your favorite rapper dropping a hot mixtape or EDM, you know, if you're into like some of the other stuff, you know, like I, I'm trying, we're, we're envisioning what this would look like as a collaboration between mom and daughter, between, um, you know, two girls, two of the girls next door, you know, who are just trying to make it in the world. So I'm really excited with this. But, um, you know, Get Free Fridays. We are bringing you really dope conversations and commentary. I'm really hoping she'll actually join me on the next episode I have for next week. But this week, I was really excited because I got to talk with Miss Malika Jabali. Malika's dope writer, brilliant lawyer, brilliant thinker. You know, we're chopping it up about the issues with electability, the need to organize, and some of the issue a little bit with, with, with Joe Biden, right? Um, and then, at, you know, if you guys have seen today, the different articles and pieces that have come out, and, you know, it doesn't really matter how many people of the old guard, of the new guard, whatever, the guard want to get out there and shuck and jive and make it try and make it okay. And we this 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 what we got to do because Mr. Charlie is good people. Mr. Joe is good people. Uh-uh. I'm not here for none of that because we are sitting here. There's an existential threat called white supremacy that has been present since the creation and the inception of this country and before it was even technically a country. And it is really rearing its ugly head right now. And we have a mandate a purpose that is so very necessary in this moment for those who are engaging in electoral politics. We cannot just sit here and back down and allow the continued misrepresentation, the inaccurate conversations and, 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 and litigations of what Joe Biden has said, how he has moved and how he has engaged in political spaces for 40 years now. It's unacceptable. And we need to demand better. We need to be consistent and clear. And no, stop asking me if he's the nominee. Will I support him? Because if he's the nominee, then that means we all failed. 
hands down. I'm sorry. Like, I, I, I know people want to avoid and there's a lot of fear and anxiety and I understand it. But my goal personally right now is for he for him not to be the nominee. There are four candidates who I believe are light years ahead of him as a as a can as as a, as a as a nominee joe biden has never shown himself to be worthy of being the presidential nominee why in the hell in 2019 would we let someone who's failed not once not twice but three times in previous tipping his toe in the presidential pool to even try to run the only reason the only the only reason why joe biden was even a non-elected vp essentially a glorified you know uh, a hype man was because there was a feeling that somebody needed the the, the, the the staunch middle of the road white dude to be on the ticket with someone named Barack Hussein Obama. Let's just kick it straight and be real. And the, and the Clintons were overbearing. Had Hillary played her cards right, she could have saved us all the trouble because she would have been the VP. She would have been elected in 2016 and we'd all be in a very different conversation right now. Right. But so, no, I'm not here for Joe Biden. Not at all. I'm not here for defenders and excusers. It is absolutely a motherfucking problem. Yes, I curse because it's gift free Friday. What? Uh, it is an absolute problem that we have people making excuses and saying that, well, that's just the way things were done. Well, you know what? Slavery was the way things were done. Jim Crow was the way things were done. Lynchings and mass murders and rape and a lot of things were the way things were done. And it was never right. It was never OK. And so even this, which some people will say is more benign in comparison, is still not OK. It is unacceptable. And we do not defend it. What, what we need to have done is real leadership in this moment, because people clearly have not learned lessons from 2007, 2008, 2016 and beyond. There is no magical fairy going to come and make the Republicans suddenly start to respect and do right. They only respect one thing, and that is strength and conviction. And they don't even necessarily respect it. They fear it. So let's get busy. Let's get real. Check out this conversation I have with Malika and then hit me back. I got another special coming for y'all tonight. A Friday night special. Ooh, your girl is full of so many surprises. Talk to you guys soon. Peace. Excited to get to chance to chat with you again. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, was really excited to when I saw your piece, I'm like, ah, why is she in my head? This is so sick. So awesome. <laughs> um, thank you so much for writing this. If you guys had not caught this piece in these times last week, um, in, in these times last week, it is sick of hearing about electability. It will take organizing to expand our political imagination. And the subtitle is to overcome the insistent messaging of the corporate media and democratic establishment. We need grassroots people power. Absolutely on point, as always. I'm joined by Malika Jabali, who is an attorney and dope journalist out of New York City. Um, super, super excited to have you back with me. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Pleasure as always. Aw. So... Really, really appreciate. Can you just talk to me a little bit? So the, so the first conversation we had, which I appreciate you making time because you were traveling and in the airport, I, if I remember correctly. Yes, but I we was. Had talked, we had talked some about your piece that you had, um, you know, post-2016 election, really drilling down on kind of what happened um, in Wisconsin and walking in particular, looking at um, the color of economic anxiety. And, you know, you hit on so many points that myself, Wendy Bees, a lot of us have been talking about and really trying to get, um, you know, some of our compatriots to look, really consider when we're talking about some of this organizing work that we're doing in electoral spaces. Uh, but you also had a really, and I always re reference your piece as well as a study done 
by um, Working America about Black Ohio, working class Ohioans who did not vote in mm-hmm. 2016. When I talk to people who start talking the, the, the all the electability nonsense, right? We have to have Biden because he's the only one we know can defeat Trump. Like I hear this language from people, and it's so. I'm like, we're. I'm like, based on what? My response now is automatically based on what? You know, I, I've had in the past 24 hours two separate people, one person in real life, one person on social media. Um, give me this number well, 40 something percent of the country loves Trump. We have to appeal to them. And I'm like, what are you basing that on? Like, where does that number come from? Do you understand the data point that you're saying to me and what that actually means in terms of the work to be done? And even this notion that he's the only one who can win, which is what we're being said by the media. And several different people have tackled electability. I had a conversation previously with Citations podcast, you know, uh, about electability a couple months ago, but I was really excited to see you tying in the issues that we're talking about the most with our with, with, with our communities, or we should be talking about with the communities we haven't been doing so, and really taking on this notion of electability. Can you talk to me just a little bit about kind of your thought process in breaking this article down? It started off with asking the question, what do we mean by electability? Are we basing this just on polling numbers? Are we basing this on sort of historical patterns and what we've seen be successful for Democratic candidates in general elections? What exactly are we talking about? And this has been coming up more, it appears to me, with the advent of kind of this split in the mainstream Democratic Party, where you've got a number of moderates, you've got people who identify as centrists in the uh, DNC, the uh, Democratic Congressional Committee, where they're saying we need to focus on these moderate voters and these moderate candidates because they are the ones that can win elections. And there is very little to support that on the presidential level. When Barack Obama first appeared on the scene as a progressive and as a populist, there were some doubts about whether he could win and and whether it was realistic for him. And it brings up a couple of points where we take black people, black voters pragmatism for granted. So early on, he wasn't, he wasn't winning the black vote. Hillary Clinton was leading in these polls. And then when it seemed like he actually turned a tide, I believe it was after Iowa, it was like, Oh, he's a legitimate, a legitimate candidate. And his polls number rose with black voters. So Hillary Clinton lost that election despite, lost the primary despite being, you know, framed as this moderate who could kind of reach across the aisle a little bit more. She could appeal to white people a little bit more. And she did. She won over the white working class in that race despite his populism. John Kerry failed to win over, you know, the majority of of voters in 2004. The same happened for Hillary Clinton again in 2016. So what historical references do we have to show that centrists can win in an election just other than Bill Clinton? So, you know, it just raised too many, raised too many questions for me to just say, okay, this is what electability is. And it's far too early to use polling numbers to determine that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I really like appreciate the trajectory you just took us through, right? Because when we talk about, and I think I think what you have a really good point there, 
when you talk about electability and what's considered this, this modern notion of electability that they're talking about, we're talking about the modern political era. So thinking, you know, post right? literally is not, it doesn't it doesn't stand up for anything. I mean what made Bill Clinton quote unquote electable was when the, you know, gee gosh, I'm so tough on crime, I'm just is one of you all. He did the same thing that, that, that won George Bush, you know, the nomination. And unfortunately whether people want to admit it or not, that won Donald Trump the nomination. That I'm just, you know, like you all and I care about these really serious issues that were fabricated in many ways and, and construed on the backs of black communities and and other communities as well, um, to proceed into, you know, white fear and it's just trying to reclaim the quote unquote lost voters um that has been with the Democratic Party over, you know, whatever period of time. But I think we talk about this notion of electability, it's not been something that has existed in our voting lifetime, right? Like you like you point out very astutely, you know, um, going back, I, re- I remember voting for John Kerry, even though I didn't really care for Kerry, but it's what I was thought I was supposed to do. I was in Ohio, so it closed primaries and, and such. So, you know, you, you voted for who you voted for, and then in the primary, you did what you're supposed to do because Ohio is an important state, and that's what you're supposed to do. And I stood in line, and it was raining, and I had two, my son was um, not even one, and my daughter was like three and a half, four, and I voted mm-hmm. for two babies in tow. Cause that's what you're supposed to do, right? And then you see, you know, things don't turn out, but it was, there were so many issues in terms of John Kerry, right? Like these, these contrived notions of electability. So like when you're looking at the polling, like you made a comment about polling and being too early to really care about these numbers. Because we saw all the way up until like pretty much election, Hillary Clinton was pulling Donald Trump out of the board because people not supposed to go any other way. You know, from, from what you were, what, what you were looking at, can you talk to me just a little bit about like this fixation that we the populace have on the polling, but also the media. Yeah, it's a little polling. Yeah, it's a little strange to me, and I'm trying to figure out why there is such a fixation on it. Uh, I I really I can't tell you, especially after the uh, was it 5:38 after that fiasco with most of the the polling experts being wrong in terms of like I think a month or so maybe less maybe about two weeks before the election they had Hillary Clinton up by like 14 points or something ridiculous and so you would think that after that that there would be some sort of reckoning with how we analyze things I mean and that was and that was you know close enough to the election but this far ahead especially you would think that you would figure out what other tools there are to measure voter interest or just to not, not count it at, at all um, or to discount it or to, to bring some sort of nuance into the conversation. But instead, the conversation is automatically, Joe Biden has black voters. He, is, you know, then it goes into, because that's the, the reference point, then it goes to, well, why do all these black people like Joe Biden? They must be, all be conservative and it takes you down a whole other path on the bottom line is that we don't really, we don't know exactly why people think that he's electable other than, you know, the things that we've always said, they're, they're most familiar with him, but it has little to no bearing on what is actually going to happen in 2020. Let's take 2016, for instance, even the Republican primary, Donald Trump was at around this time, so this was 2015, so a year out from a year and a, and a half out from the election, the exact point we are now, 
there was an article, I think it was June 23rd, they did a poll in 2015, and Donald Trump was polling at 1%. He was getting 1% of people's support <laughs> in the, the polling data. Obviously, Hillary Clinton was ahead. I think she was polling ahead of Bernie Sanders by 30 percentage points. And of course, when we came down to the primaries, it ended up being much closer to that. So this fixation on polling is still one that I am grappling with. I don't, under, I don't understand it other than maybe the media just needs something to do at the moment. <laughs> the media needs something to do. I mean, they need something to do, girl. <laughs> but like, it's a thing though, like, like, it just seems like when you look at the contrived narratives, right? Like, just for this reflection again, that's something you think about like this time uh, in 2015, having Donald Trump polling at only 1% and then suddenly he starts getting all this coverage, right? Because like the CBS was the CBS president or CEO or whatever, so that he was good for waiting was why he was giving him so much coverage. Um, that was $7 billion uh, uh, ultimately in coverage, free coverage over the course of, you know, the election cycle. And um, there's also even now, I mean, we see it a lot now that he's president, but even when he wasn't president, there was this inability or unwillingness, I'm not sure what the white word is, to actually even critically analyze what was happening with his rallies. You know, there are things that he was doing the rallies around or his service would say it was taken as like face value as if it was fact. And we see that happening a lot with those types of figures on his side of the political spectrum, so to speak, right? So mm-hmm. it, it 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 almost seems like the capital the the, the 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 commercialization and consumption nature of our media, in particular our new quote unquote news media, is so focused on almost this reality show mentality, right? Like what is drives right? I mean, Western News is the most popular of all the cable news stations, right? It has a very sensational aspect to it. It's not just you know factually informationally driven for the sake like like people don't want that right like which is why fake news and people get in duped by different posts and stuff is so prevalent like when we think about like this electability how it's contrived like how do we start breaking it down because you you tie this into we need to organize and it's something i say something a lot of us are saying but how do you you know especially given your own experience and work to talk with people how do we tie in deconstructing this 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 notion of electability that people are being fed into our actual organizing. I think it can start at home. You know, that's kind of the the easy answer mm-hmm. um, immediately. Like, start talking to your family members. Go. We got so many time, uh, so many months left for cookouts. Like this, we haven't even started cookout season. So when we get this 4th of July, you know, y'all probably had some Juneteenth cookouts coming up this weekend. Talk to your mom, talk to your dad, talk to your uncles and aunties. Like it has to start. I think there has to be a groundswell um, at a at a grassroots level. And on top of that, which is what I talk about in the in these times piece, there needs to be more frequent interactions with everyday people, with folks who are, you know, just everyday working class people go to the nursing homes, work with organizations who are organizing rallies and organizing union workers. In New York City, you know, union leadership is is very popular here. 
So go to some of those union meetings and talk to people. Go out on the street. Um, electoral politics at a at a local level is really good for that because we have petition season in uh, New York. It's typically in the summer, but they they moved the election date up, so now it's in the spring. But when we go out peti- and petition, that's like about four weeks out of the out of the year, about four weeks to two months, something something along those lines. And the petition process merely means that you're trying to get somebody on the ballot. So if you want to get a Democratic candidate, you go through a petition process and you say, okay, you just ask people, can you sign your name here so this person can get on the ballot? This is not you requesting their vote. This is just so they can appear so people do have an opportunity to vote for them if they like to. During that process, I have talked to so many people over the years and gotten into conversations with them where they're like, well, what's the point of me voting? What, who's, why is this person different from that person? Electoral politics on a local level is so key in kind of changing and shaping people's consciousness. And it's something that we're probably going to have to do, just having these one-on-one conversations because they're getting bombarded with cable news media, with corporate media who are kind of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy where they're shaping our voter decisions when people don't necessarily have the, the resources or the connections or the tools to do that kind of research on their own. So we have to be that research for them. And there are multiple outlets to do that, but it requires just getting outside, going on the ground and talking to people. Mm-hmm. 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 No, I think that's really important. And I really, I really you know, I want to, you know, you, you named some examples of what that looks like. You talk about, you know, organizing around non-presidential candidates, which is also really crucial, right? We think about the things that are directly impacting our day-to-day lives. And even we're talking about, you know, private prisons and criminal justice reform and, you know, using things in the criminal legal system. Um, a lot of things are happening in local level, right? And so you, you name, like, you know, working with organizations like BYP 100, um, you know, really excited. They're actually starting the cha- chapter here in Atlanta now. Um, mm-hmm. And, fight for 15. Fight for 15. You, you, you got yeah. Milwaukee Block, Black Leaders Organizing Community. Shout out to Block. And and I know a little bit about Block because of the work of my friend Tracy Quarter from uh, Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a recent initiative they just announced um, looking at, you know, having a divestment campaign from the Milwaukee Police Department, right? There's a whole Freedom to Thrive campaign nationwide with several organizations and stuff. Um, that people can learn I think what I hear you saying is something that's been in my own brain and I've been trying to figure out is like we talk about there's a lot of rhetoric people are really good to talk about a lot of rhetoric and we got to talk about you know defining different economic social political terms for people and 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 people talk a lot of stuff about changing things and the, owning the means of control and stuff but if we're not trying to figure out a way to sit with the people on the block and meet them where they are and talk about like how do we shift the conditions that are people are intimately dealing with on a day-to-day basis? Yep. What are we really doing? It does not right. matter all this great, you know, stuff spouting on Twitter about presidential candidates. But if we are actually getting on the ground and working with people and engaging, you know, um, you know, we have the political victories that we've had in Congress of local elections happening this year in 2019, right? We have state level elections getting ready to happen. Like, uh, I had tweeted out about two sisters running for re-election here for state rep earlier, and one of them, Renita Shannon, had no challenger, you know, in, in, in her general election, but 
still had a team of volunteers. They were like, I remember one weekend, my son and I went out like during GOTV for a and she had like 10 to 12 volunteers. She even had like her mom and her uncle drive down. Like, so she had mm-hmm. a whole slew of us in her district knocking on doors and stuff, even though she had no opponent. But she was going to win no matter who showed up. But she recognized that of course, only turn out as many people in her district because of the, what was happening at Top Stacey Abrams. But she wanted to make sure people knew who she was. So she That's had us right. um, doing, she, she made postcards. So in addition to for Stacey's campaign that we were handing out for Renita, even though she didn't have an opponent, she had a she had a she had a, 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 a she wrote something out, had it printed up on postcards. So we were giving each house also a postcard from her with her contact information, just expressing you know her her gratitude to be able to represent the district because she when she won, she ran against an incumbent. You know what I'm saying? But she's been able to hold on to her seat. But she mm-hmm. she did, was still doing that outreach and that engagement. And even though she didn't, so if you're an elected out there, right, you end up in a, a cushy, easier, easier seat, you know, still investing and helping other folks as they're running. And we've seen that. I mean, it was it was so amazing to me last year when around this time, Ayanna Presley was sending her team down to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? Like Ayanna Presley is in a, is in a, I don't know if people understand what happened. Like, when people see all of this, we're not up now. But I don't know if people understand what happened last year during that primary season. Like, Ayanna sent her team from Boston to New York. Mm-hmm. Even though she was in a very, you know, heated primary herself. Wow. She sent her team. And then when AOC won, she sent her people. You know what I'm saying? So, like, we're right. seeing people who are modeling this behavior for as well. And so we really need to start working that into our own work, even if, you know, not all of us can get out and knock on doors, not all of us can, can do certain things. But if your activism is hyper digital, there's a way we can figure out how to model this and at least uplift what's actually happening offline as well, um, particularly as we're challenging these electability narratives. What counter that we're providing to help people be engaged with us instead of just setting down like we saw unfortunately happen in 2016. Right, right. And I can offer, you know, a, a brief example of that. So I am the co-chair of an organization called Operation Power, People Organizing and Working for Empowerment and Respect. And it's based in East New York, Brooklyn. And our um, assembly person for that district in East New York and the councilwoman in that district are both progressive, radical elected officials. I might've mentioned this in our last conversation, but the assemblyman who co-founded this organization, his name is Charles Barron. He's a former Black Panther Party member. He is a socialist. He talks about socialism whenever he could make a speech on the floor in the city council, that's what he did. And now he's an assembly person. He does the same thing. So you have people who are radical, where, you know, folks say black people might be turned off from anything that's, you know, too outside of the status quo because they're risk averse, et cetera, et cetera. But they take all of that because A, he prov- he shows up for them. He provides services to the community. He makes sure that they're, you know, are getting funding for their schools and their parks. And he's very focused on capital projects for the community. But what he always tells me is that when folks see him on the street, you walk around with him and it's like walking with a celebrity. Like everybody knows him. Like, hey, Charles Barron. Hey, CB. Hey, Mr. Barron. People know him, be- not because of his 
you know, rich philosophy and because he can wax poetic about, you know, Marxism and Kwame Nkrumah and African socialism, it's because he goes to their graduation. He shows up, you know, when they've got uh, Thanksgiving dinners. He shows up when, you know, there's a funeral, unfortunately. He shows up for the community and people need that sort of one-on-one presence. People need to see that if we're talking about combating, again, something where they're inundated with all this other messaging. So how else are we going to get our message out there if we don't have the same tools that the corporate media has? And one of them is through this organized work. Now, shifting gears a little bit, it's been, it's been, I, I guess, still kind of similar talking about along the lines of flexibility. Like, so we have uh, a mainstream narrative that's coming from it's coming from particular dim individuals within the party. Um, and we're probably seeing it, you know, I'm seeing it here locally with different people. It's interesting to see who decides to start defending what whatever shenanigans are happening. You know, this week, um, you know, many of us, once Joe Biden had actually announced running for president, we were all like, I mean, there were already things that predated his announcement. But um, when he announced, I mean, even the way he announced was problematic. I mean, from he basically copied Kirsten Gillibrand's announcement video, which, you know, is whatever. But then actually using uh, 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 Charlottesville as a backdrop, an event, an incident, a recovery, an experience he was never even a part of based on what members of the community have said. Um, It just was very grotesque in many ways, right? But somehow Joe Biden positions himself as being the one to fight this this scourge of white supremacy. And yet we have Biden this week defending and using his relationship with segregationists among all the Republicans in his life that he could recount these stories about. And there, there are accounts saying that, you know, staff and other advisors warned him about not repeating these stories publicly ever, and he doesn't listen. Um, very much like old white men, unfortunately. Old people generally are stubborn, but you know, right. you're so trying to be the leader of the so-called free world, allegedly, which is a ridiculous statement anyway in of itself, right? But mm-hmm. but just this week, we're still seeing so many people try to defend. We have members of the CDC trying to defend and rationalize that we've all had to work with races. Yes, many of us have had to work with people, unfortunately, um, I sure, I'm sure our preference is not to do so, and most of us do not rationalize or justify working with people in ways that harm others the way Joe Biden, who is now seeking to be our president for the third or fourth time, depending upon how you count, is doing. So when you're thinking about like this whole conversation we've been having about electability and how he's the only one that can win is what people are trying to be, are being force-fed or repeating and yet we're seeing, we're seeing this colossal train wreck that he's always been, as a presidential nominee, unfold before our very eyes. It seems like this week is making the point of your article and why we have to organize and help people understand what's possible. It, it just seems like it's making your point so much, so much more clearer. Yeah, and I think the problem is a lot of the people whose voices we are hearing from are people who are going to vote anyway. Uh, members of mm-hmm. the CBC and members of the media and folks um, online and wherever, these are people who are politically engaged. 
so there are two problems with just assuming that Joe Biden can take this mantle. And one is thinking that whoever voted for Obama is just automatically going to support Joe Biden when there were a lot of people who voted for President Obama and didn't show up at all in 2016. So what gives us the impression that somebody who's a worst candidate, uh, objectively speaking, in terms of his civil rights record, in terms of mm-hmm. um, his corporatism, because Hillary Clinton was, you know, a third way Democrat, but she managed to kind of be a little bit elusive. And it's very clear that Joe Biden is not. He authored the crime bill instead of just kind of uh, showed his support. What is win over these non-voters Hillary Clinton could not? And there's also a problem in terms of, so one is, electability requires not just people to, to say that, okay, he's better than Trump, but they need to actually go out and vote. And I'm not mm-hmm. convinced that a lot of these people are necessarily going to show up, you know, when they're, they're tired and, and it's late and they got to come home, go to the polls from, from work, that they're really going to have that sort of energy behind him. But it's also showing in terms of his, his gas that we all um, talk about, uh, just a lack of, of strategy so even if you do have to work with these these senators and people who you have philosophical differences with, it, he tried to kind of clean up his arguments later. You're saying this at a Wall Street fundraiser in order to win over the billionaire class. Like let's let's look at it in context. And so on one hand, you're saying that you can work with these people, but then you go to the poor people's campaign forum and you're hoarding over. Julian Reed is saying, oh, we can do this if we shame them into it. So which, what's the story? Are you going to shame them or are you going to see the best in them and work with them? You're not being consistent even in your messaging. So mm. there's nothing that really shows to me that Joe Biden is even committed to doing anything for, you know, the, the Democratic base. And he's willing to kind of say whatever he needs to say in order to get support for that moment. Mhm, mhm, mhm. No, I think that's really. I was also thinking we were talking about like let's be real about even using that example of I can work with these super bad races as a see I can work with the super bad races we have now. You know, trying to reassure. I mean, there's so many different levels there, right? Like because I think the fact that we have to sit here and try to figure out what the hell he thought his his stick was or his angle was, is also highly problematic, right? And like you said, he's not even being consistent. And we, we, we've heard the conversations about people having inside and outside, you know, strategies, or they have their closed door, you know, sticking their, 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 you know, external one. But the problem here really is it literally makes no sense because if the argument is bipartisanship and I can work with people across the aisle, you picking the most extreme examples of people you were able to work with, and then those instances when you're working with them is some of the most highly detrimental policy making we've seen in the last 40 years. I mean, because there's a whole long, you know, when you dig into his relationship with Strom Thurmond, because despite as much people want to claim like, oh, he's he's not praising segregation as he wouldn't do that. I mean, he has done that, right? He eulogized Strom Thurmond. He had a very long friendship and relationship with this man. Um, you know. You know, they work together on civil forfeiture. Uh, they work together on the war on drugs and actually argue to have increased sentencing of crack cocaine uh, and claim that Reagan wasn't going far enough. I mean, when you're to the right of Ronald Reagan on drug policy, 
and part of that work is working with segregationists, there's a huge problem. And even now we have people who are trying to defend him, like, well, that's what we had to do to get ahead. That's what we had to do. That's what we had to do. I mean, there's, there's two things. Like, so, so do we buy that that is what people had to do? I, I just still feel like that Democrats still made a choice in these moments, just as George, uh, George Clinton, <laughs> just as <laughs> Bill Clinton made the choice to be the tough on crime Democrat who executed someone to win an election, right? Like, like there was a choice made by the Democratic Party to take this route. Right. It's, I think it's a, a bit um, almost ahistorical to say that mm. this was necessary. Uh, that is what Democrats have adopted. But when you look at the number of people, even within the CBC, it's like, oh, the CBC voted for it. The CBC had a lot of problems with the crime bill, but for mm-hmm. them, they're like, well, it's kind of the same conversation we're having now. Well, we just got to fight the bullet. We got to pick less of two evils, so we'll, we'll do it. But it was the, the this leadership that was kind of hamstringing senators and the Congress people into thinking that this was necessary. But I am cautious about thinking that it's, it was necessary for Democrats as a whole or for Democratic voters as much as it was necessary for these individual elected officials mm, to be able mm-hmm. to win and succeed in their elections. Because mm-hmm. right immediately after the, uh, this was 1994, when this passed, it was 1995, when Louis Farrakhan was organizing the March and was calling the crime bill draconian. Not just him, actually, he called the crime bill draconian. So black people were not so um, head over heels about the crime bill with a lot more nuance than that. So it's not like they needed to do this to, to resolve problems that all black people had a problem with. That's not true at all. When you look at right. newspaper rec- the newspaper record, when you look at Bill Clinton's, um, uh, what, what was that, his primary voting percentage among the black voters. He got the least amount of black voter turnout ever in 1996. So it's not like he was doing this to win over black people and because there was just all this crime that was happening in our communities. Black people were disaffected with with Bill Clinton in 1996. He got a lower voter turnout than any other presidential election by Democrat in the last 50 years. So there's been a a lot of revising of history about the Clinton years that really need to be set forward if we're going to move away from the third wave politics that Joe Biden has epitomized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, some people get defensive and feel like we're just attacking Joe Biden, right? And how do we, so how do we, when we talk about our organizing, we talk about really engaging and digging in deeper people. How do we, you know, from your opinion and your experience and just looking around, how do we, I know we talked about earlier in the conversation about, um, you know, we have, we start at home, we have plenty, of, I mean, we, we're, we're tomorrow, my daughter pointed out, the solstice, right, it's the beginning of summer. Tomorrow is the beginning. We have so many more cookouts and so many more functions and events and phone calls and opportunities. Like, how do we change the way in which we're engaging and communicating with people 
to not just, oh, we're not just hating on a particular person, but we're literally trying to help expand people's minds to see the possibility. I mean, you started out talking about, which was, which I felt, again, really the great historical references about how Hillary Clinton was supposed to be the nominee. It was all locked up 2007, but then Obama had that breakthrough in, in Iowa. And then, you know, by South Carolina, folks were having to change their tune. John Lewis, you know, who had endorsed Clinton had had to, had to change it up. Um, so how do we, like, and I don't know that it has to mean a particular candidate we all get behind, but how do we at least just start changing the conversation of the way in which we're talking and engaging with voters, especially thinking about some of these different narratives that 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 we need to, you know, deconstruct, dismantle, and do away with that have been reimagined and have been fed down our throats the past mm-hmm. twenty five or so years. I think it's to push back on the narrative that Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump. If you compare the two of them. You see that a lot of who Joe Biden is, has attempted to attract are the white working class. He's framed himself as a blue collar candidate, even though he isn't. He's not. He's had some, you know, connections with unions, but there's very little data because he hasn't won any of the elections that he uh, attempted to participate in on a presidential level. There's very little data showing that he really has a white working class on lock. And why would they choose Republican light when they can just go for Republican with Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. So, A, he has no track record of showing that he can win at this level. And he's tried to. This will be the third time now. And you talk about just what happened in 2016 and how that can very much repeat itself. People are not excited about him. You look at this disconnect between what voters are saying that is electable and what can beat Donald Trump and the actual policies that they support. We can we know older people who are on disability, who want, um, you know, health care. They might be interested in, in Medicare for all. who are on Social Security. And if we show them that these are the policies that most people actually are interested in across the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, from urban areas to, to rural neighborhoods, People are interested in these more progressive left-wing policies. So if you think that he could actually beat Donald Trump, one, is that something that you want necessarily if you know that he's not going to be fighting for any of the things that are actually going to affect you? But then two, there's absolutely no reason to expect him to beat Donald Trump. So the same way that you you kind of began this conversation is if they think that he's electable, why? So you get people to confront kind of what their biases are, what their um, narratives that they're being being kind of bombarded with, and you just you just question, you ask them, and you ask them to to think about, you know, consider the things that um, on a on a national level, what people have have preferred policy wise. Mhm, mhm, mhm. And it's really interesting because folks will use examples like Sanders or Warren. And say, well, you know, we we saw the obstruction of the bombing year, so what makes you think that they're going to be able to get anything done anyway? Like, ho, 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 hold up. If you're so convinced that Joe Biden is the guy, right, then what is this? I mean, like, like it's just really weird. Like, he's the one that can defeat Trump. But how will anyone else get anything done because the Republicans are so obstructionist? So it's like either you're buying into this fallacy, which we have literally no, like you said, we have no evidence, whether it's on a 
on a national level. We have no evidence even from his actual career in in Congress that any of the things that we're saying that we need and want that are good for our lives, we will get with him so magically. Like this notion that he can magically do what no one else has done with Republicans is is laughable. But when you really start looking at what does Joe Biden cooperate Republicans get us, it gets us Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, right? It gets us, like we've talked about, the war on drugs and the creation of a drug czar that even Reagan was not even necessarily in favor of. Like, mm-hmm. again, I'm still talking, I'm going back to still like, it, it's like blowing my mind. Even Ronald Reagan didn't want certain things that <laughs> Biden and his Republican right. counterparts pushed for. Like, like other Democrat has been able to, because even when you look at like Clinton, Clinton still had to fight, uh, 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 you know, um, Newt Gingrich and uh, uh, others in Congress, you know, and I mean, we we have Democrats, we have this, this notion of, you know, closing out with this discussion of bipartisanship. You know, Democrats are always like, oh, we got to be bipartisan. Well, we got to think about the other side. We got to think about this. We got to be considerate. But that is not something that's ever returned to the opposite party. They they act and they exist. It's it's like Democrats are stuck in some old antiquated gentleman's notion of war. And Republicans exist on a whole different playing field in terms of the rules of engagement. They're not using the same books of rules of engagement, right? So that the Republicans have rules of engagement that that are genuine and real. So it's 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 this weird notion that people are being fed these concepts that we don't actually see happening in reality. Particularly when we look at the state level and we look at quote unquote bipartisan support from voters. You look at Medicaid expansion, you look at something nationwide like Medicare for all, but in states that still don't have Medicaid expansion like Georgia, you have bipartisan support for it, but you can't get the Republicans to actually bring up the bill. You have right. support for gun control. Okay? You know, nationwide, these things are popular. You know, they have support across the aisle, so to speak, but it's the actual people in these positions that will deal with these issues. Right. And it's hard to trust Joe Biden's philosophy of sort of seeing the best in people Mm. as a political strategy. That's, you know, literally what he said when he was eulogizing Strom Thurmond on the Senate floor uh, the day after his funeral. When that is irrelevant to politics, you can see the best in people however much you'd like. But what does that have to do with recognizing that people are financially struggling. People are going through economic crises. We are going through a crisis in white nationalism. We are going through a crisis with uh, these children at the border. We're going through a crisis with climate change. So your ability to see how great a, a active, vehement segregationist can be should not be relevant to the political conversation right now when we need people who are going to fight on our behalf. And if your idea of, of fighting and reaching across the aisle means to compromise and kowtow to segregationists to the right wing, then you are completely out of step with where people are right now. I don't think Ayanna Presley and Rashida Tlaib and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Elon Omar could have won if they were not fighters. And that is what people need right now in this political climate. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, any final thoughts as we close out and 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 put a cap on this 
one conversation, but I'm sure you will have many more <laughs> to come. Yes, we have a, probably Juneteenth activities this weekend, wherever you are. Look look to see where it's at. Print out some flyers. Give people a list of the reasons why Joe Biden should not be president. <laughs> go to... Mm-hmm. Um, the, Go to all the cookouts that you can, whoever is out there, just please talk, please talk to your family members. I got on the, on the phone with my mom and I've been, you know, even her, it doesn't take too, too long for her because she's always been an activist, but they're not having the same types of conversations we have. And that's not mm-hmm. even, they, people are busy. They got things to do. Like I can mm-hmm. afford to be on Twitter. I got no kids. So I can be on Twitter and I can read these, uh, I can read all these debates. Like I don't have as many obligations as some of our elders probably do so mm-hmm. talk to them spend some time with them and it and i don't think it's going to take that long it's just simple basic conversations ask why be a little bit critical allow them to uh, to have some back and forth and we can probably do so much through that through that type of work mm-hmm. well thanks a lot sis i really appreciate you for joining me and for the excellent dialogue and please continue the great work because I do, we need all of us we can out here, you know, yeah. giving people alternative content to, to, to unfortunately what is being said to us, you know, building beyond the status quo and all that other good job. So thank you. Thank you so much, Noah. Absolutely. Have a good night.